Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. listening to this and eating a box of cereal made by General Mills that James Ford Bell uh, was our founder. So he was an avid hunter, routinely traveled into Canada, Manitoba, Canada to waterfowl hunt. And that led to him securing property and becoming attached to that part of the world. And like many great conservationists, he wanted to give back. He wanted to personally put back uh, more ducks than he harvested every year. And that was that was the moment the seed was planted. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 98, The Duck Hunters Organization. Today, I'm going to be talking with Joel Bryce, who is the Chief Conservation Officer of Delta Waterfowl. Joel has a Bachelor of Science in Wildlife Management from the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point and a Master's of Science in Biology from the University of North Dakota. And we're going to be talking all things Delta Waterfowl. I am a new Delta Waterfowl member. I am not a duck hunter at all, have never been duck hunting. And I sort of fell into the membership backwards that we'll talk about in, in the episode. And we're going to learn, like I said, all things Delta Waterfowl. And it is an absolute great conversation with Joel. So let's just jump right into that conversation. Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence has put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash conserve the wild go visit today and become a sponsor welcome back everyone another good episode uh coming up here today that you're going to hear this is going to be a good conversation because i'm highlighting yet another wildlife conservation group. Uh, this is a conservation group that's been around for a while, but I have just been made aware of them. And that conservation group is Delta Waterfowl. Um, my guest today, as you heard, Joel Bryce. Joel, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So I, I want to get this out of the way first. I am not a waterfowl hunter. Um, I, th I know the importance of waterfowl, right? Um, I buy my uh, duck stamp every year uh, because I want to support conservation for migratory, you know, game species, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I'm, I was not aware of Delta waterfowl. Uh, 
I guess probably because, you know, I'm not a waterfowl hunter. Uh, I became aware of Delta waterfowl because I purchased the conservation crossing t-shirt for, I believe it's a hundred dollars, but it included memberships to various conservation organizations and Delta waterfowl was one of them. So can you give the listeners real quick, we'll start off with just the sort of, you're in an elevator with me. I see the shirt that you're wearing, the hat that you're wearing says Delta waterfowl. And I say, what's Delta waterfowl? in that, you know, elevator ride, what's your pitch of Delta waterfall? Yep. If, if I was getting out of the, if I was getting out of the elevator and the door was shutting and I could only say one sentence, I would say that Delta waterfowl is the duck hunters organization. That is all you would need to know. But if we had the opportunity and the door was just shutting and we were both on the same side of the door, I'd say Delta is the oldest waterfowl conservation organization in North America everything that Delta does starts and finishes with the waterfowl hunter in mind. We are not set up to survive beyond waterfowl hunting. Everything we do, whether it's research, any of our conservation work, our duck production work, our hunting advocacy, our conservation advocacy um, work that we do, everything is for the duck hunter. That's awesome. Um, So, Delta Waterfowl is the oldest. When was Delta Waterfowl started? 1911. 1911. <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, basically, it's an interesting story. So if you, yeah, no, know, absolutely. I, I want to hear. I want to hear the story of 1911 waterfowl hunters saying, "Hey, we want to start our own. You know, we want to start a conservation organization for ducks." Yeah. No. The interesting James Ford Bell. He was the founder of General Mills. So if you're sitting, if you're listening to this and eating a box of cereal made by General Mills, that James Ford Bell uh, was our founder. So he was an avid hunter, routinely traveled into Canada, Manitoba, Canada, to waterfowl hunt. And that led to him securing property and becoming attached to that part of the world. And like many great conservationists, he wanted to give back. He wanted to personally put back uh, more ducks than he harvested every year. And that was that was the moment the seed was planted. And Kind of fast forward to 1938, James Ford Bell enlisted the help of Eldo Leopold. That's a popular name for many in conservation. He'd be the, you know, the father of modern wildlife management, um, a Wisconsin native. And he hired, he, he enlisted the help of James Ford Bell to start doing research. And so literally in 1938 is when that kicked off. And from 1938 to today, we have conducted... <laughs> Well, let me just say that early, the, the first many decades after that 1938, that's the foundation of what we understand about waterfowl and waterfowl habitat. And then fast forward to today, yeah, Delta is really active in research, but our research is oriented towards problems and solutions. And so kind of that golly gee whiz basic phase of understanding ducks, what makes them tick, that's kind of in the past because of all of that great research that was done years ago. But yeah, so if there's an issue, population issue, regulations issue, production issue, we're going to stick a research project um, right there to, to find management-oriented outcomes. All right, so research that's being done, like you said, what you, as an organization, you guys are past like sort of what makes a duck a duck, um, what, a, what a duck needs to necessarily you know, live in its lifespan. The research now is more problem oriented. So what are some of the problems 
the, that we're seeing now in today's duck population or, or for their life cycle, that that research is helping to hopefully make scientific decisions to remedy? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So really what Delta's focused on. So I think rarely can anybody or any organization be all things to everyone. And so Delta has chosen to focus on the breeding grounds or areas that ducks come from. You know, we leave the wintering grounds. Where do they go on their winter vacation to, to other folks? And we focus more so on the breeding grounds. And one of the things that's well-documented is where ducks come from has radically changed over the last century or more. Agriculture, grassland conversion, wetland drainage. And so production is a huge issue. So a lot of our research focuses on, on, on the declines in, in uh, reproductive outputs in, in waterfowl populations. And, you know, we have a couple huge projects. Some of us, a lot of people know us for the work that we do on predator management. So basically we, we, everyone knows that there are areas of the breeding grounds that have really high, astronomically high breeding populations of ducks, but there's not a lot of grass for those ducks to nest in. Ducks nest in grass. And so when you cram all the ducks into a small area and you cram all the predators into that same small area, it's pretty easy to figure out that reproductive rates crash. Some places do well, huge areas of the prairies do not. And so we focus a lot of our research today on what are some of the solution-based outcomes for ailing those, um, I guess, the, the, the low reproductive rates. So that, you know, if we could back up time and add seas of grass, that would be the remedy. But farmers farm, not all lands for sale. Pressures are to grow agriculture, not see it decline. And so there is a balance needed between grassland conservation, grassland acquisition, restoration, and trying to find solutions for existing habitat to, to produce ducks at a higher rate than what you're seeing. And when you're talking about grass, you're not talking about someone's manicured lawn and Bermuda grass or, or anything like that. You're talking more like, you know, native grasses, prairie grasses for these ducks, right? Yep, there's a combination. So yes, there are native grasslands, but also there's, you know, the Conservation Reserve Program or CRP. So those, those are more, those are planted um, areas of grass. They can be hundreds or thousands of acres in size. There's also alfalfa, you know, pasture land, uh, odd, you know, grassland areas, you know, in and amongst wetland complexes. But yeah, we're talking about permanent grassland cover. Okay, so that that's a lot of the, as you mentioned, a lot of the focus on research is production. Um, what about sort of the advocacy that you do for the average duck hunter? Well, what are some of the focuses on focuses that, that Delta Waterfowl has currently? Yeah, good question. So, so I think the overarching concept here is that hunters in general have been on the decline for the past several decades. In Canada, it's been much longer. That's a whole different can of worms. But we have, you know, we in the United States are experiencing an ongoing decline in hunter participation. Some types of hunting more than others. So, um, so basically, why are they declining? So there's a lot of societal issues, value system changes, 
moving from a rural to urban culture. So people are just removed from that hand-me-down uh, tradition of hunting. But the number one reason that people cite for why they are struggling to hunt is access, right? And so places, quality locations to go, you know, that are nearby that fit into your busy life schedule. I have a busy life schedule. So at a national level, Delta is trying to, I guess, solidify the, you know, that, that hunting, we're trying to secure the future of hunting. And so anytime there's a national threat to hunting, we want to be there, but we do put, put a lot of our time as well at that level into, into um, opening up additional lands for hunting access. So the National Wildlife Refuge System, Jason, maybe you followed it. You know, the National Wildlife Refuge System is thousands and millions of acres in size. There have been areas of that refuge system that have been close to hunting that did not need to be close to hunting. And so there was an evaluation conducted by the federal government in support of NGOs like Delta and thousands of acres were open for the first time to hunting. So trying to open up, trying to give people places to go and at least hold a line. Now, we also have a side of our organization that is focused on local hunting issues. So as a hunter, you know, uh, you know what we find is that as the urban sprawl you know, moves out into the countryside, now you have a clash of value systems. So you have one group that says, hey, that bay that I have my house on, I'm tired of hearing shotguns go off in the morning. And so that's a huge one. Discharge ordinances, um, Sunday hunting. Some obviously, as you know, some areas are not open to hunting on Sundays. We, we do weigh in on those issues. It's for many people, those are the only, you know, the weekend is the only, are the only two days of the week that they can hunt. And so a lot of it's, there's so many, and, but, but those are give you the example of kind of the flavor. And we encourage people to flag those issues for us in their community where they need help. Yeah. Mentioning um, access as sort of the main citation of, of, from hunters of why they maybe stopped hunting or don't hunt as much as they would like to, uh, that falls right in line with a couple of weeks ago, uh, the guest that we had on Mark Domain Duda of Response Management, who does a lot of the, you know, his company does a lot of those surveys and, and he, uh, you know, echoed that exact same concern that a lot of hunters have. And, you know, like you said, there's, there's a lot of reasons and uh, the big sort of hot topic now for trying to get hunter numbers to stop declining is, you know, we refer to as R3, right? Reactivate, retain, and um, recruit. Uh, what, as far as the recruiting aspect goes, is Delta Waterfowl doing anything there to try to get new hunters, first-time hunters into the field? Oh, yeah. Very active. That's a huge part of the organization. So not that many years ago, um, we did not have dedicated R3 staff. Now we have two, plus myself. I spend quite a bit of my time on R3, but it's a huge part of our organization. We call our R3 efforts Hunter 3. So you take Hunter and R3 and you smash them together, and it's Hunter Recruitment, Retention, and Reactivation. And so the two big programs that we have the one that we push out as an organization as staff is called our university hunting program. The other one is conducted by our chapter system, our volunteer chapters. We have probably 400 chapters scattered across the United States. I think we have seven or eight in Pennsylvania, but each one of those chapters 
they raise money for the organization, but the condition is, is that when it's all over, all the bills are paid, they get to decide how 15% of those, fund, those funds are spent locally. So they submit a request. We want them to do what's called first hunt. So that's any chapter conducted R3 event. And so it could be an educational day it, at, a, at a trap range. It could be a mentored hunt. It could be a calling clinic. It could be anything that's drawing people who don't hunt waterfowl into the waterfowl hunting community. And so just a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, we had about 12,000 people that first hunt introduced to waterfowl hunting. So it's pretty cool and it's huge. It's across Canada. It's across the United States. The other program that I referenced earlier is called the University Hunting Program. And that one, it really surprises a lot of people. And so I'm going to tell you 25, 30 years ago, however long it was, Jason, when I decided I wanted to go to college, hunting was a big part of my motivation to go be a biologist, to be a conservationist and a manager. So I sought out a wildlife school. I went and secured my wildlife degree. Fast forward a whole bunch of years, and here I am um, doing what I love, supporting hunting, supporting conservation. That's changed. About 25, 30 years ago, probably 80% of wildlife students were like me. They hunted, they went to college. But today, only about 30% of wildlife degree majors are hunters. And so 70% come to college to get a wildlife degree with no hunting background whatsoever. I'm not calling them animal rights activists or anything like that or anti-hunting, but basically what we're seeing is those individuals, that 70%, they are populating the ranks of wildlife managers and biologists, and they don't understand hunting. Maybe they have a negative perspective of hunting or a negative viewpoint. And so we see that as a as a huge concern. So we developed a program. We've targeted 494 wildlife-oriented universities. And this fall, we're conducting 36, one of them, actually three of them in Pennsylvania, uh, Delaware Valley, Millersville, and Penn State. And so basically, we partner with a professor, say, hey, we'd love access to your non-hunting wildlife degree majors. And then we run them through a four-part curriculum, hunter education, a day at the range. We take them on a mentored hunt. And then we conclude it with a game feed. And then throughout the semester, the professor, as part of our agreement, talks about at least 10 big principles of hunting and conservation. And so the whole goal is that when they graduate or they finish that semester, hopefully they hunt. Most of them do, actually. Most of them pick it up and keep hunting. But at least when they go out into that hook and bullet job, like a waterfowl biologist or some game biologist that they at least understand hunting and value hunters and understand that perspective. So our goal is to get to 494 universities. We're on our way there. Yeah. There's, there's a couple of things I really like about what you said. Um, one, uh, just going into that sort of the university outreach that you're doing, um, Having these people that don't have a hunting background, don't come from a hunting background, be game managers, basically, right? Being wildlife biologists. Um, that's a concern, not necessarily from the aspect that they, to me at least, that they may not think that hunting is important, right? Because that's probably going, they're probably going to have almost maybe an entire course, um, you know, talking about how to manage numbers and, uh, you know, of a population and hunting is going to be a part of that. Uh -huh. uh, for most of these universities. So they may understand the academic reasons that hunting is important for managing a game population. 
but a big part of their job that they probably don't realize when they decide to you know, study wildlife biology is the social aspect of that, right? You have to convey the reason why there's regulatory changes or whatever it may be to the hunting aspect. And you have to be able to talk to hunters that are passionate about hunting, about why, you know, the scientific decision has been made. So for them to be able to experience hunting and, and even if they, you know, I know the ultimate goal is to try to make new hunters, but even if they don't, if they just have a greater understanding and appreciation of what the average hunter feels whenever they're hunting and, you know, why they're out there hunting, it's going to make it easier for them to communicate with the, you know, those hunters in their you know, day job. So I think that's absolutely great. And I'm also glad to hear that Delta Waterfowl is focusing on non-hunters that are closer to adulthood, or I guess technically adults. Um, that's one of the biggest issues that I have with a lot of R3 movements for the new hunter aspect. Mentor days are great. They're, they're awesome. It, you know, for, to, to expose a child, essentially still, to hunting, and in this, this case, waterfowl, you know, that's obviously a good thing, right? We want to expose children to a good quality activity. That being said, I often question the impact that it's actually having on hunter numbers, because in my experience, and this is a personal experience, one of two things is happening. The kids that are being exposed are coming from a hunting family, right? So in this case, it's already, they already have a dad or an uncle or a grandfather or a mom or whoever it is in their family that's already a duck hunter. And hey, this is a mentor day. This is a way for me to spend time with my kid. And so the chances of them becoming a hunter or specifically duck hunter, probably higher, right, than any other random kid off the street. But even if we go into, you know, let's say that one of your chapters here in Pennsylvania goes to downtown Pittsburgh, to one of the farmer's markets and has kids that have never hunted before sign up to hunt and they take them out hunting. That's great. But then what happens after that? Like, did they have the adult in their life to that can afford to buy any of the gear uh, that they would need to hunt? Are they going to have uh, an adult in their life that's going to take the time to actually take them a field? Right. There's there's a lot of barriers with kids, whereas when you have college students or older, they're going to have at least some disposable income. They're going to have it in their mindset that if they want to go, they have the ability to go. Right. They can get where they need to go. So I love hearing any person involved with R3 talk about trying to reach those sort of older individuals to try to get them, you know, try to convince them that they should be hunting. Yeah, I appreciate everything you said there because I didn't have to say it. <laughs> I, I say it all the time and I and I feel like Joel, shut up. You know, I've heard you say this before, but that's exactly the case. And that, you know, the university hunting program, just to wrap that one up, yes, that is if I had to pick the if someone said you have to pick a 10-year age range, and those are the only people you could try to recruit from now until the end of time, I would pick about 18 to 28 or 20 to 30 because for all the reasons you said most of the time they don't have children yet they have some time they have some money they are trying to develop their own social peer group they can recruit their friends guess what you make them a hunter 
they're going to have their own kids and they can basically restore that hand-me-down tradition of parent to child. And I call that self-replication. The, the concern about the future of hunting, there is an urgency here. I often say, you know, I've, I, I can see the next 10 to 15 years of hunting, but I really can't see past that without some real change in the types of hunters that we have, the, you know, without significant recruitment effort, I can't see past about 15 years very clear. And so you recruit an adult, they can recruit, recruit their own child, born or unborn, right? But if you recruit a 12 year old kid, like you said, they don't have time, money, uh, can't drive. And so basically that 12 year old kid has to turn 18, most realistically get through college. Oh, hunting is awesome. Right. So that's maybe a 10 year payoff and then a bunch more time for them to have their own kids. And so the, the youth recruitment, there are really good ways to do it, but it's it's risky, it's experimental and it's and you don't really know if it worked for many years later. So, yeah. So on the university side, yes, you're right. Well, I, when I went to college, we talked about hunting a little bit in, you know, academically, but you can't describe hunting academically the second i try to tell you why i love hunting i got it wrong because i can't describe why and it's not academic yeah there's the financial side the conservation side that's academic and you could teach that but when someone actually experiences hunting you can't describe it so yes we do feel that the trial based experience of taking those students on a mentored hunt is critical now on the First hunt side, yes, we are absolutely beating the drum constantly. Hey, chapter, if you want to hold a first hunt event, consider recruiting an older audience for the reasons that you stated. But there's some strange dynamic there, Jason. It's like kids are cuddly and they're non-threatening. And I think there's when someone turns 18, they become the person that could take over your hunting spot. So I think people just naturally want to introduce kids. So for those that we can't modify that mindset, we say, okay, if you're going to recruit kids, you have to, you have to take on almost a big brother's, big sister's approach. Take them once, take them twice. You have to take them many, many, many times or roadmap them out to other types of experiences. Take them, roadmap them out to a Pheasants Forever mentored experience or the Pennsylvania Game Commission has a workshop. You need to roadmap them out to all these experiences until they become old enough or can find a mentor outside of their family group to take them. So yeah, it's, there's so much more than take a kid fishing, take a kid hunting. Yeah. And I just want to, I want to clarify, I'm not saying that youth are three movements, you know, or, uh, you know, having mentor days, I'm not saying they're useless. Um, there's something to be said for giving the opportunity for someone that hunts to take their child also with them, right. To help solidify you know, that experience, because typically these mentor days are early in the season or maybe before the regular season starts, more game, easier access, right? Like it's a, it, when you have a kid, they, they have short attention spans. You know? So yeah. to put it, to put game in front of them and, and ex give them a good experience as a foundation, that is a good thing. Um, but like you said, the, we will see an immediate, a much more immediate impact if we go after those, you know, 
late teens, early 20 year olds, maybe even up to 30, we're going to see a much more immediate impact that like you said, you know, it's hard to hard to sort of look at hunting past 15 years that 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 scares me as just having a child and thinking, you know, if, if in 15 years hunting's gone, as disappointing as that's going to be for me to not be able to go out and hunt, um, for my child to only experience that for a couple of years and then it be gone, that, that breaks my heart. Uh, so yeah, I'm glad to see anytime I hear anything about R3, I'm always happy. And then to see even more that, that sort of push for, um, you know, young adults to, to try to get them involved. I think that's even better. Uh, in my personal opinion. All right, so you let's move on to the projects that Delta Waterfowl does. You mentioned, you know, it's more it, not, you focus a lot on duck production. Um, so what does that look like? Like, is it at the chapter level? Um, do you guys have like a specific team that you send out that does something? Are we just enhancing something? Are we trying to acquire new property? I mean, what is you know, the sort of on the ground work that Delta Waterfowl is doing? Yeah, good question. We do have a team of biologists that that deliver our programs on the ground. They are in the breeding grounds, the prey pothole region in particular. So that's Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, North and South Dakota. And the two big weapons in our arsenal are predator management and hen houses. Now hen houses, actually, we do have hen houses just across Lake Erie from Pennsylvania, uh, in that Long Point, Ontario, Turkey Point area, we have hen houses that we've deployed there. We've done extensive hen house research in Northwest Pennsylvania, um, not, not all that long ago. But predator management, basically, th this is kind of goes back to there. When you talk about chicken or the egg with ducks, water comes first, grass comes second. Water determines how many ducks can settle onto a landscape for the reproductive effort grass determines how successful they are so we can find areas through our gis modeling and and uh, partnership efforts with the federal government and other groups we can model and say okay these are areas that have tons and tons and tons of ducks but very low grass so you know the output is a very a, a terrible reproductive output so what we've been able to do is hire professional trappers to go into those landscapes and the predator populations are out of balance from pre-settlement levels. So, you know, we have raccoons where there weren't raccoons. We don't have grizzly bears and wolves limiting, you know, coyote populations, et cetera, et cetera. So there are different types of predators that specialize on duck nests and they are at levels that are at pre-settlement levels. So basically it's a landscape that ducks have not evolved to succeed in. So we actually bring in trappers to, and we assign them targeted areas to, I call it level the playing field or restoring the predator prey balance. It's not an eradication program, but basically it lowers the predator population to a more normal level. And what you see is the hatching rates of ducks, they skyrocket. And, and in some places, fewer ducks leave in the summer then came in this leave that area in the fall then came in the spring the hatch rates are so low and so we basically created now source areas sources of of expanded duck numbers and we have those areas in manitoba and north dakota we've done work in uh, saskatchewan alberta and south dakota so that's a big one that's a growing effort for delta the other one is our hen houses and so if you've seen those they're wire cylinders with vegetation rolled inside of them 
We mounted on a pole in a wetland about three feet off the water and mallards jump into those. Hen mallards will jump into those. And so as you can imagine, instead of nesting in the grass, hiding from predators, hoping they don't lose their nest, they're in an elevated cylinder over the water so nobody can get to them. The odd raccoon can get to them. The uh, clever raccoon can figure out how to shimmy that pole or maybe a raven will you know, jump in, you know, fly into that tunnel. But the hatch rates are really impressive. Typically, most of the time, exceeding 80% of those nests will hatch as opposed to maybe 10, 15% on the ground. And so we have probably 9,000 of those hen houses scattered across the breeding grounds and then reaching into Ontario. And I think we have some in Pennsylvania from our last research project there as well. But that's a program that we are also on the front end of, of huge expansion. So we will be expanding that across the prairies, more numbers moving into the Eastern Great Lakes and, and source areas for the Atlantic Flyway. Man, I, I am so glad that you mentioned what some of the predators are because I feel like a lot of people, when they hear predators, they think, as you said, like wolves, grizzly bears, uh, mountain lions, like those, those, those are not the predators we're talking about with a ground nesting bird like ducks. You know, we're talking about the sort of scavengers uh, that, you know, are just as likely to get into your garbage as they are uh, a duck nest. So uh, I'm glad that, that you sort of clarified that for, for some people. So if someone wants to, you know, they're hearing some of this about Delta Waterfowl and they're thinking, hey, this sounds like an organization I want to be part of. What should that person do to become part of Delta Waterfowl? Yeah, good question. I, you have really two options. One of them, jump on our website, become a member. The entry-level membership is $35. That comes with five issues of our magazine. Sometimes there's a promotion where that membership will come with a hat or maybe a call or some other incentive. But the really popular one is to you know, go on our website, find out where the nearest Delta Waterfall chapter is to your location. You know, I don't deal with fundraising, but I love the community of, of waterfowl hunters that represent that chapter. It's basically a place for like-minded people to gather, talk, meet other hunters. If you're a new hunter, it's a great place to find a mentor or some other location to hunt and talk. But the big thing is, you know, typically when you buy the banquet ticket, it comes with a membership. So that's a way to become a member too. And so just for a little bit more money, you can have a, a dinner and the camaraderie of, of other hunters, hopefully meet new hunters. And then I love that we call it Waterfowl Heritage Fund. That's the 15% the, the um, of the funds that I discussed earlier. That's a great way. Um, if I put myself in someone else's shoes, it's great to raise money for a conservation organization, but that's blind faith, right? And there's when you support a conservation organization, there's always going to be that blind faith. If I raise money for them, I have to trust that they're doing good things with it. We are, but there's always that trust, right? But that 15% to do things locally, to put out nest structures, to give away scholarships, to support a shooting team, to hold a first hunt R3 event, that's your opportunity to give back to the community and be, you know, allow those that come to your banquet to see real impact. And so those are the two big opportunities that I see for people to become engaged in Delta. Yeah, seeing it at the local level makes 
all the difference, um, you know, for the other organizations that I have been a part of, you know, I always feel more passionate about that organization when there's a local chapter and there's local people I know, and there's, you know, the, I can see the work that they are doing on the ground that then gets me inspired to also help them out and do more work on the ground and things like that. So, um, you know, that's, that is definitely something I recommend for everyone to reach out to those local chapters and, and become a part of it because it is a community. And, you know, if you're interested in it, you're going to find people that are so passionate about it that even if you didn't think you'd be passionate about it, you're going to start becoming passionate about it. You know, it goes from an interest level to that passion. Uh, Joel, what, what did we miss? Is, is there anything about Delta Waterfowl that you're like, hey, these people got to know this about our organization? You know, I, I, I think we kind of covered it. So the, the four Delta kind of breaks itself down into four pillars, research and education, duck production, Hunter three, which is the R3 effort, and then habitat conservation. Maybe we missed the habitat conservation. You know, that's, it, it really kind of brings up the, what uh, does Delta buy land, manage land? What do they do on the habitat side? Delta, I'll call ourselves relatively small. Um, growing organization, probably 60,000 members, 60, you know, staff, 60 uh, person staff. But on the habitat side, we do have a partner in Manitoba, Canada, where we deliver uh, perpetual wetland easements. So if you remember the old, which comes first, the water, the grass. So we take our habit, direct habitat conservation money, and we work with our partner to uh, perpetually secure wetlands. Now the landowner retains that, you know, the ownership rights, it's just, they can never drain it. And so a duck will always be able to set up its breeding territory on that wetland. So, th so that would be probably what most people think of when they think of habitat management, but the rest of it, we have policy staff who focus on um, creating habitat programs that are included in the farm bill, you know, the federal conservation uh, agriculture spending package. So we recently had a working wetlands program that was put into the farm bill and that was a Delta uh, pilot effort, a Delta advocacy effort, and it was absorbed by the federal government, which is awesome. So it basically puts a value on wetlands in cropland. And so farmers now have a financial incentive not to drain those wetlands because if they drain it, they can plant it and they can make more money. Now that, that uh, temptation to drain is gone for those that have enrolled in that program. But yeah, so our work is more at the policy level. So we take our staff and our time and we, and we work to achieve big picture outcomes. Yeah, and one thing I wanna make absolutely clear, just like every other uh, organization that talks about doing habitat work, habitat that's good for ducks is also going to be good for pheasants, quail, deer, turkey, right? Like songbirds. I mean, this isn't just a, a, we're doing something that's only going to benefit the ducks, right? That, I mean, yes, that's the main goal, but there's always those fringe benefits to other wildlife as well. So it, it's that holistic approach that is absolutely awesome. And I'm so glad to see habitat work being done that by any organization, by any single person, any landowner, like that's always good. If you're helping, trying to help one species, you're going to be helping multiple species. 
Yeah, I'm glad to hear that you purchase a duck stamp. And there are lots of people who don't hunt waterfowl or migratory birds that buy a duck stamp. And the great thing, just to piggyback what you're saying there, is that ducks, waterfowl, they're a fantastic umbrella species for just a long, long list of of non-game species and other game species. So if you manage for ducks, you're by default managing for everything else. And the thing about waterfowl is waterfowl has a revenue stream to fund conservation. So yeah, anybody that buys ammunition or archery equipment or um, uh, offshore boat fuel um, licenses, you know, you're dumping into either a state agency's, you know, uh, budget or Pittman Robertson funding, you know, the excise tax on firearms and ammunition. So hunters fund conservation to a large, large degree in the, I guess in the non-game world, sure, everyone can play a role and do, but there's not a built-in funding mechanism to, you know, the non-consumptive types of outdoor recreation. And so, yeah, people who don't hunt should love hunters. Go on to YouTube. There was a Colorado did this kind of funny, um, it was maybe one minute, it was a promotion and it was called Hug a Hunter. And so basically it, 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 was, it was a really clever way of showing how everyone benefits hunters. And there was a dollar bill floating in the air and it, it, it uh, flew by some people that were hiking on a trail in the mountains and it flew by all these different people and the whole punchline was Hug a Hunter. And so check that one out, it was, it was pretty cool. You mentioned uh, Pittman Robinson, which is something we've talked about extensively on this podcast. Uh, hunt, and you mentioned, you know, hunters fund conservation largely in this country to the point where uh, it just was released uh, a couple of days ago as of this recording that the Pittman Robinson Fund has been funded to the tune of $14 billion to this point. Um, that's, a, that's a lot of money coming mm-hmm from hunters that goes directly towards conservation. So uh, like I said, if you're not a hunter, hug a hunter if you like the outdoors. That's right. All right, Joel, thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, I highly recommend that people uh, join Delta Waterfowl. If nothing else for that magazine. I've, I've really enjoyed reading uh, some articles in that magazine that I'm now getting that, you know, it's now that I'm a member of Delta Waterfowl. And um, I, I, like I said, join up it is definitely going to be for uh, the benefit of the outdoors and wildlife and ducks specifically. So Joel, thank you again for joining me. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity and maybe we'll have you on, on Delta's podcast at some point in the future. I would absolutely love to maybe after I uh, do my first hunt. Hey, sounds good. Sounds great. All right, Joel. Thanks. All right. Take care. Once again, that will do it for another episode. Big thanks to Joel for joining me. Big thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, I learned a lot of great information, and I hope you did too, about Delta Waterfowl and the work that they're doing and advancing you know, duck hunting and hunting in general and habitat uh, all over uh, the Midwest and everything that, that needs to be done for a solid duck population and you know waterfowl population it is just absolutely awesome to hear all 
the great work that this organization does. And I, and I can say, even though I'm a brand new member and have not you know, been able to participate in any volunteer experiences yet, I'm definitely proud to, to be a member and I can definitely see myself keeping this membership into the future just because of all that great work that this organization has done. As you have heard in the advertisements, uh, if we want to call them that, uh, in the more recent episodes, uh, we do have a Patreon page. So if you'd like to support this podcast and help us to get Conserve the Wild off the ground, uh, forming our own conservation group, uh, go ahead and click on that link in the episode notes and, or go to patreon.com slash conserve the wild. Uh, go ahead and support us. It's a, a, you can either do a one-time uh, support payment or you can do a monthly payment. Uh, there's some benefits if you do some, some monthly payments. So uh, go ahead and help us out, help us spread the word and continue to do the work that we're trying to do and enable us to do it a little bit more and, and hit those goals that we're trying to hit. And, uh, you know, as always, until next week, stay wild.